Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, looking for answers in the debris. There's intense collaboration regarding the analysis of the debris. The FBI is now examining what remains of the Chinese balloon shot down earlier this month. What might the search reveal? What pattern might be found in the four objects shot down? We'll speak to former National Security Advisor Richard Fadden. Also, we are nearing one year since the Trudeau government introduced its Official Languages Act. There are critics both outside and inside the government, and we will speak to Minister Jeanette Petipa-Taylor. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. We begin tonight south of the border, where the FBI is now examining the debris recovered from that Chinese balloon shot down earlier this month. The balloon is the first of four unidentified objects that were taken down by U.S. fighter jets, and teams have now been deployed to recover the remaining three crafts. Among them, the object shot down over Yukon in Canadian skies. The Defence Minister Anita Anand gave an update on that operation today while attending a NATO meeting in Brussels. We are continuing to search for the debris in central Yukon. We have deployed a number of aircraft to assist in that recovery effort. I want to indicate that the terrain is extremely rugged. It is extremely remote. The temperature is approximately minus 25 degrees Celsius there, and there is heavy snow. So the recovery effort is difficult. But as I said, we have a number of aircraft on the ground, in the air, and uh, people on the ground. We have uh, RCMP. We have FBI assistance, and we have obviously Canadian Armed Forces uh, members that are assisting with this effort. With more, we are now joined by Richard Fadden. Mr. Fadden is a former National Security Advisor, a former Deputy Minister for National Defence, and from 2009 to 2013 was Director of CSIS. Mr. Fadden, thank you for joining us again. My pleasure. Now, the U.S. has uh, recovered debris from the first balloon. Uh, I want to begin with that. What exactly will they be looking for? Evidence of spying, technology? What are they keeping their eyes out for? Well, I think they've concluded that there was some spying involved, so that will simply be confirmation. I think one of the most important things they will be looking for is the technology. How good is the technology? Is it similar to that of the United States? Are they more advanced, less advanced? And one of the things about intelligence is that you take a particular piece like that related to the balloon and you link it up with other bits of intelligence that you may have about Chinese intelligence capabilities. And that can give you a much better picture of what they're capable of. And if you have a better picture of what they're capable of, you're, much, you're in a much better position to develop countermeasures. Also, if you're lucky, you can use all of the technology and all of the material to try and extrapolate uh, how the balloon got here, but more importantly, why it's here. I don't, I'm not sure that they'll be able to do that at all, but they will be looking at it from every conceivable angle 
But the most important is the technology, which enables us to develop better countermeasures over time. Now, China uh, still denies it is a spy balloon. In fact, they said that the U.S. Uh, have had their balloons infringe on Chinese airspace in the past as well. Uh, what do you make of the response that we're hearing from Beijing? Well, uh, I have some difficulty accepting at face value what they're saying because the Chinese party state has the practice of never admitting uh, any fault, uh, but always of, you know, casting responsibility on other states. Uh, the United States, all the major powers have, um, have uh, intelligence gathering capabilities. The U.S. has, China has. I think what we're arguing about here is whether or not um, uh, the balloon intelligence gathering program is a significant one over time. I really don't know if the United States has one. Uh, I would be somewhat surprised if they do, because you can gather virtually everything from satellites. Mm -hmm. Now, the prime minister, as you know, says uh, that they're seems to be a pattern emerging for unauthorized intrusions into North American airspace. Do you see a pattern? Well, I think he's right when he says he see, we see a pattern. There's been four of these things over, you know, 10 days or so. But the really important question is, what's behind the pattern? And I don't think we're going to be able to articulate clearly what that is until we have more information about the three uh, the three objects that have been downed other than, the, you know, the, the large balloon. So is there a pattern? Yeah, sure. It's ha four over 10 days suggests that there's something similar here. But if it turns out that they're all from China, that's one thing. That's a really worrisome pattern, but we're in no position right now to say that. If, on the other hand, it's one or two China, a couple of commercial and something from another country, that's an entirely different thing again. Um, it may appear as if everybody's trying to uh, not answer the question, but we really do need more information before we can uh, agree with the prime minister on what kind of pattern he's seeing. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you talk about information, and it seems as this story goes on, this, these incidents go on, the U.S., uh, their officials have been more comfortable sharing information than have Canadians. Uh, why is that? Well, I think part of it, there's a tradition of the Americans being a little bit more open on national security than we are. Um, uh, they're also more uh, open in the United Kingdom and Australia. We have a practice of being quite reticent about national security issues. In this particular case, the United States has direct access to the Chinese balloon. So this does put them in a somewhat better position to, to comment on that aspect. But I think broadly speaking, Canadian ministers have been very reluctant to say a great deal because we don't know a great deal. Having said that, I repeat what I've just said, Overall, we tend to be quite reticent in Canada in talking about national security issues. And we often get some information uh, from the United States, which just as easily could have been provided by Canadian officials. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I also wonder, given your background in both security and defense, what do these incidents tell you about Canada's state of readiness? Because that has been questioned in the past few days. Well, that's a complex question, I think, because in terms of... Uh, space and aerial awareness surveillance that's a responsibility of norad you know that's set up by treaty between canada and the united states and that organization is responsible for knowing what's coming into north american airspace um my sense is they're doing a 
pretty decent job of it, although increasingly people are now beginning to suggest that some of these balloons or other kinds of objects have been over our airspace in the past, but we haven't really captured them. Uh, but I think you cannot talk about this topic without mentioning the fact that both the government of the United States in particular, but the Canadian government as well, have acknowledged over time that we need to modernize NORAD. The circumstances have changed quite a bit since NORAD was created. We now have uh, hypersonic weapons. We worry about North Korea when we didn't have to do that and sometimes in the past. We really don't know what the Russians are up to. So I think broadly speaking, we're not doing too badly, but anybody who thinks that we're entirely up to date to deal with all of the threats that might conceivably be directed at North America, I think is being a bit optimistic. So at the very least then, do you hope this incident, these incidents inspire conversation? I very much hope so. I think one of the characteristics of national security in Canada is we don't talk about things very much unless there is a crisis of one sort or the other. I'm not sure I would call this a crisis, but it's certainly an event that is capturing a great deal of public attention. And I do hope we can talk about it. Uh, one of the characteristics I think of the national security dialogue, if I can put it that way, in Canada, is Canadians, generally speaking, don't feel terribly threatened. And if you don't feel threatened, you know, it doesn't encourage government to do a great deal of feel. But things like this, uh, you know, the fact that you're, we're having this conversation, that you're going to broadcast it, I think is important because it, it draws to the attention of Canadians and of our political leaders that there are threats against Canada that are real. And if we're going to take our sovereignty seriously, we have to spend time, money, and effort uh, in developing the capabilities to deal with them. Richard Fadden, appreciate the time once again. Thank you for this. My pleasure. The rising cost of food continues to be a major issue for Canadians, with prices on everything rising nearly 10% in 2022 from the year before. A Commons committee is now examining why food has gotten to be so expensive, but dissatisfied with the answers they have received so far, the members of that committee are now summoning the heads of Canada's largest grocery chains to testify. Joining us now is Alistair McGregor, the NDP Member of Parliament for Cowichan, Malahat, Langford and British Columbia. He also sits on the committee that is summoning the CEOs. Uh, Mr. McGregor, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi Michael, how are you? I'm good. You know, your committee has already heard from food execs. Why the need now to reach out for CEOs? Well, I was quite disappointed when we saw the vice presidents of the big three companies appear because in my mind, um, when your industry has got such a crisis of confidence and trust, I think real leaders uh, show up and they publicly defend their companies. And it was always my intention that the CEOs and presidents of these companies would come before our, uh, our committee. And so I just thought adding some clarity uh, to the motion last night, um, you know, making sure that the word summons was in there, uh, that was important. And, you know, I was not alone. Um, we managed to have that motion passed unanimously. So that means my conservative and liberal colleagues and the Bloc Quebecois, I think they all understand the, um, you know, the importance of this moment and they voted in favor of it. So uh, it's nice to see a strong unanimous vote coming from our Agriculture Committee on this particular motion. But do those uh, CEOs, do they risk becoming political pawns? You know, if the answers are not really going to be that different, what's the point of having them there if not for political spectacle? 
I don't think this is political spectacle. I mean, these are real life issues for Canadians. Like so many Canadians from coast to coast to coast are going into the grocery store each and every week and they're watching astronomical food prices. They are making incredibly difficult decisions. And you juxtapose that with the incredible profits that these companies make. I mean, you have to remember that in a corporate structure, the president and the CEO is largely responsible for setting the direction of the company. And they very quickly get fired uh, or are demoted if they don't bring in profits. So I think having the leader of the company in to answer for this time of high inflation, which I believe is, is directly linked to, to corporate profiteering, I think it's important for them to step up to the plate and to answer for, for their company's policies. Okay, you, you describe it as corporate profiteering, but you know, the Competition Bureau, they have already been asked to study food prices by the government, but ahead of that report, whenever it comes out, they, they're already looking at, at factors like extreme weather, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, supply chain issues. Aren't those credible reasons? They are, uh, but also, you know, if you, if you look, if you tuned into last night's committee meeting, you'll also see that, you know, we looked at, at other sectors. I mean, I, my conservative friends like to talk a lot about the carbon tax. What they don't talk about, though, is that since 2019, large oil and gas companies have seen an increase in their profits of 1,011%. So I think the evidence is very clear that in so many critical sectors, if you look at the jump in profits from the last pre-pandemic year, that's 2019, up until today, all of those critical sectors have been going up. So absolutely, I believe that you know corporations, many different sectors have been taking advantage of the troubled times that we have found ourselves in, especially over the last three years. I acknowledge that climate change is happening, that there is a war going on in Ukraine, but there, despite all of those costs in the supply chains, the net profits of these corporations are still going up, and that is the important thing to underline. Does Parliament risk, though, telling a, corpora a corporation, a company, whether it's grocery or otherwise, what profit, what profit level is allowed? Because if it is profits and the profitability of grocery stores being raised. Just how profitable are they allowed to be before they get into trouble? No, I don't think we should be uh, managing their internal affairs. What I'm ultimately trying to do is to build a case, a strong case for an excess profits tax, a strong case for a wealth tax. I think it's time for Canadians to stand up and stop being so deferential to corporate power in Canada. And I think it's time for my liberal and conservative colleagues in particular to do just that. Uh, it's time for us to look at these incredible profit margins and to institute these kinds of taxes, especially an excess profits tax, because you look at how many Canadians are suffering just to put food on the table, just to pay the rent, just to fill up their cars, and you juxtapose that with the huge profit margins that are being made in this day and age. That's the argument I'm trying to make, is that we need to institute these policies to redistribute that incredible wealth and put it back in the pockets of Canadians who so desperately need it. That's what I am trying to do as a policymaker. So what happens if the CEOs refuse to show up? If they refuse to show up, um, that's something that our committee is going to have to take a look at. I expect our next steps would be to refer the matter to the House of Commons and to the Speaker, um, because we only have as much power as the House gives us. So that will be something that the Speaker and ultimately the House will have to make a decision on. Alistair McGregor, really appreciate the time tonight. Thank you for that. Appreciate your interest, Michael. Thank you.
Also on this Tuesday, Conservative MPs Pierre Palouz and Jazraj Singh Halan came out to talk about affordability. Instead, they were asked questions about the notwithstanding clause. Now, yesterday, the party voted with the Bloc Québécois on a motion that would have recognized a province's sole right to invoke the clause, even preemptively. But when asked how Conservatives could support the motion and still fight Quebec's religious symbols law, well, this is what happened on the Hill today. What's your message to people who are impacted negatively by Bill 21, who say that the preemptive use of the notwithstanding clause is trampling on their rights, and that is what is brought in this legislation, and your party just supported it? What do you say to people who are impacted negatively by Bill 21? Look, let me be clear. I have been in the House of Commons when I was first elected, in the first few months of myself being elected, talking against Bill 21. Today, we are talking about the wasteful spending that this Liberal government has been doing after eight years, driving more and more Canadians into poverty. The Liberal government has spent more money than all governments before them combined. And what that's doing is sending 1.5 million 1.5 million Canadians are going into food banks. You yesterday voted in favor of a motion that does everything that Stephanie just said. How do you defend that and how do you explain it to the people who feel affected by Bill 21 in Quebec? Look, I've been clear on my stand on Bill 21. Today's motion is to help and stand with Canadians that are suffering from this 40-year high in inflation. That this, today's motion is very clear and this is to help support Canadians so get through the, the tough time. You have nothing to say to the people of Quebec about Bill 21. Meanwhile, in Mississauga, Ontario, a state funeral was held this afternoon for Hazel McCallion. Hurricane Hazel, as she was known, served as Mississauga mayor for 12 consecutive terms. She died last month at the age of 101. Today, she was eulogized by those who respected and loved her. She grew up in a time that told, told her she was less than a man, that she didn't belong in the rooms where decisions were made. She grew up in a time that told her she should temper her ambition and drive to serve. Hazel refused to accept that. She never fit the mold, and she proved the naysayers wrong. That's what made Hazel such a trailblazer. She often publicly said that she was never interested in running provincially or federally. She said she wouldn't have been any good at following the party line. I'm sure my father and I weren't the only prime ministers to wonder how great but challenging she might have been as a minister before realizing it was most likely a bit of a moot point. We probably would have ended up as ministers serving in her cabinet. The last time we spoke, she told me how proud she was of my council and how we handled the pandemic and our recovery from it. And when I asked her what would be next, she looked at me and she said, I'm winking at the Premier, independence. It's time for Mississauga to stand on her own two feet, she'd say. A single-tier, independent city. <laughs> Once at a meeting, I was with Lloyd Robertson of CTV, myself, 
and ASL, and we kind of agreed that we should live together. So when I quit at 70, she called me to give me help. What happened to you? As Hazel, compared to you, I'm a chicken. So I'm gone. Because I cannot be as tough as you are. The government's official languages bill is still being considered in committee and it has been a difficult journey. Dissected by the opposition, it's also come under fire from Liberal MPs, especially members from the Montreal area. They have raised concerns about the bill's impact on English language rights and their opposition to their own government's initiative has raised questions about Liberal unity. We're now joined by the Minister of Official Languages, Jeanette Petipa-Taylor. Uh, Minister, thank you for being with us tonight. Thanks for the invitation, Michael. Now, we are approaching uh, one year since you introduced your Official Languages Act. Uh, the bill is still in committee. Are you concerned that it's taking so long? Well, I think first and foremost, Michael, we have to take a few steps back. When I became the official language minister, I first and foremost consulted with many stakeholders across the country to see what exactly they wanted in this new legislation that I tabled, Bill C-13. And as such, as you've indicated, we tabled the new uh, modernized um, legislation uh, on March 1st, and the matter is presently before the House of Commons Standing Committee on Official Languages, and we continue to follow that process very closely. But the process is taking uh, perhaps longer than many had anticipated. There's been pushback from opposition MPs. But, you know, as you are well aware, you've also received pushback from your own caucus colleagues. Why weren't these concerns, uh, in particular about Anglophone rights in Quebec, uh, why weren't they ironed out before the bill went to committee? I think what we have to recognize, Michael, is that we are in a parliamentary setting, a minority government, and it's really important that the work be done at the committee level, and that's exactly what is happening right now. I think that we've all recognized over the past few weeks, we've seen many uh, emotional interventions that have been made at committee, and that's not unhealthy. I think it's really important as members of parliament that folks have the opportunity in order to voice the concerns of their constituents, and that's exactly what our colleagues have done. But moving forward, the committee continues to work in studying all amendments that have been that have been provided to committee and again uh, I'm optimistic that we are going to see the end of that study done very soon. But I'm wondering given that this is all being hashed out in committee as as opposed to behind closed door before the bill was actually introduced did that contribute to the kind of public fighting that we have been witnessing uh, in particular I'm thinking of your colleague Francis Drouin taking to, to Twitter to express his frustration with fellow liberals. Again I think we have to recognize that legislation bring forward when it comes to official languages is a very personal piece of legislation. This is identity. This is about who we are. Official languages is very personal and I think that we've seen the debate, a healthy debate if you will, uh, in front of committee. I think again we have to recognize that as parliamentarians, as our caucus members, we don't tell our members what to think and what to say at committee and I think we've seen that our, our, that our committee members have been very vocal and have shared their issues and also the points of view of their constituents and I think it's very, it's healthy 
healthy in a healthy democracy to be able to to, to show uh, those, those concerns and moving forward again they voice their concerns but moving forward the liberal government uh, is very united in knowing that we have to address the decline of french that's happening in this country and we recognize that french is the minority language in this country that really uh, is threatened and as such that's why they're moving forward with an with a robust piece of legislation to help to promote a french all across the country but also while respecting official language minority communities. Well, you mentioned the Anglophone community in Quebec, and there certainly are uh, concerns being expressed by uh, Montreal area Liberals. Uh, they are concerned about references to Quebec's language charter through this bill. Uh, Anglophones uh, beyond the MPs uh, within Quebec are concerned that the charter would actually limit their ability to use English in the province. What do you say to that concern? Well, with respect to Bill 96, that's provincial legislation that's in place in Quebec, uh, Bill C-13 is a federal piece of legislation. Yes, we mention, we make reference to the to the to the French Charter, if you will, but we are in no way saying that we agree or disagree with with that legislation. It's simply stating that that is the legislation that's in place or the law that's in place in Quebec. I want to be very clear to our English-speaking listeners that are out there. Bill C-13 does nothing to take away any rights from Anglophones in Quebec. And coming from a minority language community myself, I recognize the importance uh, of our legislation, and I've made it very clear that we want to make sure that our legislation, number one, protects our official minority communities, but also we have to recognize that French is a language that is threatened in this country. It is the minority language in this country, and the federal government has to play its role in making sure that we address that issue. Oh, but it could a simple solution, and you know this has been raised with you before, but could a simpler, su simple solution just be acknowledging that English is a minority language in Quebec uh, within the bill itself, uh, the way the bill currently acknowledges the challenges the French language faces in other parts of the country. But we also recognize that you know that New Brunswick has his specific its specificity in New Brunswick as well, and we make reference to that uh, within our legislation. Again, we we recognize that when it comes to linguistic matters, these are very very personal um, um, and thoughtful conversations that are going on, and it really comes to get us. I, I recognize that, and I think that if this bill would would be an easy bill to move forward, probably many governments in the past would have done so. We want to take this on because we feel it's extremely important. Interveners from across the country have been waiting for decades for a modernization of the Official Languages Act, and moving forward, that's exactly what we're doing. 2023, I say, is going to be the year for official languages, with hopefully our modernization and our, the adoption of this legislation, but also with our new action plan for the next five years, because we want to put in place what our plan, our work plan is for the next five years when it comes to official languages, and I'm looking forward to be able to table that report in the very near future. What do you say then to, to, to again, the Anglophone community in Quebec who, who have already said they feel abandoned by the provincial Liberal Party, and now this bill and the, the contentious back and forth in committee are worried about losing their rights within the province. What do you say to those uh, Quebecers who feel that there is no Liberal Party to turn to when it comes to protecting their language rights? Well, again, my, my comment, and again, I want to be um, very clear that with respect to Bill C-13, uh, ju former Justice uh, Supreme Court Judge Bastarash made it very clear when he appeared at the Senate, and he said, and I quote, that Bill C-13 takes no rights away uh, from the Anglophones in Quebec. 
So I want to be very, very clear. And I think that we have to make the differentiation between Bill C, uh, between Bill 96 and also between Bill C-13. There are two different pieces of legislation. They're absolutely not at all the same. And we want to make sure that federally that we are going to take our responsibilities when it comes to protecting and promoting French across this country, but also while protecting our official language minority communities. Well, you mentioned New Brunswick, and I also want to get your thoughts uh, on the educational changes uh, being considered for New Brunswick, your home province. It would create an immersion program come the fall for kids who enter kindergarten in grade one. Those students would spend part of the day learning in French, the other learning in English. There has been pushback uh, from parents. As, for, as uh, the MP for Moncton Riverview Dieppe, what's your take on what's happening right now in New Brunswick? Well, it's not legislation that's being proposed, but there are changes to the immersion program. And I have to say that I'm extremely concerned with respect to the situation, and I'm monitoring the situation very closely. I think we've seen across New Brunswick, there's been several public consultations with the Minister of Education, and we have seen a record number of people turn out to these consultations. Parents are rightfully concerned with respect to the changes that are being proposed in the immersion program. And what is being proposed is really, if you ask me, not an immersion program, but an introduction to French program. Uh, and it's almost an, an initiation, if you will, to French. So I can certainly understand why parents are concerned, why New Brunswickers are concerned with respect to these changes. Uh, the government, um, Minister uh, Horgan and also Premier Higgs have indicated there is no decision that is set in stone yet. They're still looking uh, at the consultation results. So again, as the minister responsible for official languages federally, and also as you've indicated, being an Acadian from New Brunswick, this is a, a dossier, a, a file that I'm following closely, as uh, we know that it could have some serious repercussions for our students in New Brunswick. Minister, thank you for the time. I really appreciate it today. Thank you. And that is our program for this Tuesday, February the 14th. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. We'll see you again tomorrow, and happy Valentine's.